Good morning, Crossroads family. If I'm honest, uh, this morning, um, I've been walking through a season of discouragement and despair. And uh, I think we all have those seasons in our lives. We all have times of discouragement and despair. And it is something that is a common experience if you live on this planet. Maybe you are facing discouragement and despair like me today. Uh, Maybe you feel like there's nothing but bad news in your life. And you're walking through a season. Could be that... You have health issues, or there's news on that front. Sometimes it's relationship issues that you face that seem discouraging and overwhelming. Sometimes it's the effect of sin in our lives and the consequences that come with that. Other times it's financial issues or, or just life in general is weighing you down. But the reality is, if we live very long on this planet, we're going to be facing seasons of discouragement and despair. We've entitled this year at Crossroads Church the Year of Hope. And I think that's appropriate, given that there's so many things in our world that are trying to steal our hope, trying to bring us down. And so we are beginning a new a look at a new book in, in the Bible this morning, and it's the book of Joel. And the book of Joel, I've entitled this series, it's only going to be a three-week series because Joel only has three chapters. And so we're going to look at that um, both today, next week, and then in two weeks from now we'll finish the book. But I've entitled the book, The Day of Hope. Because there is a day coming that we can all look forward to. A day that is going to be filled with nothing but hope. A day that will take away any discouragement and despair that we are carrying. And we can look forward to that, and Joel proclaims that day with confidence. But as we look at chapter 1 this morning, I believe that God placed this chapter in my life for this season, for this week. So this message is as much for me as it is for anyone else here this morning or anyone that is hearing this online. But I've entitled chapter 1, from despair to hope. Because I believe the prophet Joel provides us some things that we need to focus on. If we're going to move from a place of despair, discouragement, and hopelessness to a place where hope can live again in our hearts and in our minds. And so I want to have you guys join me here in the book of Joel. Joel is part of the minor prophets in the Bible, the book of the 12, the Hebrews or the Jews um, regard Joel as the second book in the book of the 12. These are 12 prophets that lived during Israel's history from about 900 B.C. all the way down to about 400 B.C. These different prophets uh, God used to communicate truth to his people. And they were recorded for us and kept 
as God's word in the Bible. And so this book, this book of Joel, uh, is the second in a series of 12 books that really tell one continuous story. It's the story of Israel's relationship to their God. And so the book of the 12 starts with a man and a prophet named Hosea. And his message is born out of personal family struggle. And we're not going to obviously go through Hosea this year, but I encourage you that if you have time this week, read through the book of Hosea. And it will give you some context as we approach the book of Joel. But Joel's writing, Joel's word from the, God, from the Lord, comes from a place of national tragedy and despair. Joel, we're not sure when exactly it was written. I spent a lot of time trying to figure that one out. And there is just a wide range of opinions when it comes to when exactly this man lived. There's no clues within the book that really narrow it down to one specific season. And so there's some who regard that he likely lived at the time of Hosea and Amos and where he's placed in the book of the 12, which was around the time of King Joash in about 856 B.C., and there's some evidence that, you know, is in the book that maybe points to that. But then there's others who say, no, he must have lived later on, you know, just before Babylon came and, and, uh, and carried out the punishment that Israel deserved for their sins. And there's clues in the book that certainly support that view. And then others even believe that because there's no monarchy mentioned, there's no king mentioned in the book of Joel, that he must have lived after the exile that he was a contemporary of, of men like Nehemiah and Ezra and some of the, 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 the men and the stories of that time in Israel's history. But we do know that the temple was up and operating during the time when Joel was writing because of clues within the book. But I don't think that it's that important, obviously. God didn't give us the specifics as to when this book was written. What's important is what's contained within and the message that it conveys both back then and to us today. So join me in uh, chapter 1 of Joel. We read this. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Joel means worshiper of Jehovah. He was a man whose very name conveyed that he worshiped and feared the Lord. And his father was Pethuel, which we have no idea who he was. We have no idea when he lived. But we know that he was an historical figure because he was put into a lineage. He had a father. He was a real man. He was a real guy who lived and who ministered as a prophet in Israel's history. Verse 2, hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, 
the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. You know, it's interesting here in the book, we're given um, a few things here in the first few verses. And one is that Joel is referencing a recent event in Israel's history. It was a very tragic event. It was an event of destruction and despair. Locusts literally had come and devoured the land. And it was such an enormous event that Joel is saying this type of thing has not happened. Before this, or it won't happen again here in the land of Israel. And so he instructs them to tell it to their children and to their children's children, to the next generations. You know, I, I did some research, and I have a video I want to show you about locusts. Because you're thinking like, well, I, don't, I never heard of locusts or them causing havoc. But um, this is an interesting video I, I found, and it's just about a minute long. I want to show it to you. It was the biggest swarm ever seen. 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide. It was phenomenal. One of the largest masses of animal life that's ever been recorded. The insect tornado blocked out the sun for five days. We estimate that the swarm probably contained about three and a half trillion locusts. Wherever it touched down, Fear, famine, and starvation followed. Locusts are intimately associated with the wrath of God. But this was not some biblical plague. It happened here, in America, in the 19th century. And experts fear it could happen again. Species are shifting further northward. Locusts from Mexico and Central America could swarm across the U.S. border and sweep through cities, fields, and farms, devouring and devastating everything in their wake. Wow. How many knew that that happened? Yeah, you guys studied U.S. history and knew about that event? I never even heard about that. Um, but I guess there was a, a locust population that was called the, the um, Rocky Mountain Locust, and it swept across the Plain States, and it devoured a lot of land. Did you hear five days the sun was blotted out by this swarm of locusts? It's amazing. And uh, so, so Joel is referencing an event that was similar, although in Israel's history, they deal with something called the desert locust not the Rocky Mountain locust, obviously. They're over in Israel, and they have the desert locust that swarms out of Africa and is carried on the wind, and there's seasons where it causes devastation in their land. And so Joel is writing his book, and he's referencing this terrible event that has taken place in their history. And he says something about telling the children about this and, and making sure that the, the children's children understand what has taken place. I want to read Psalm 78 for you, Psalm 78, 1 through 8, because it talks about this idea of passing things on to the children and, and helping them understand what God is doing. This is what it says in Psalm 78, 1 through 8. My people, hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. I will declare wise sayings 
I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known and that our fathers have passed down to us. We must not hide them from our children, from their children, but must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord, his might, and his wonderful works he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know they were to rise and tell their children, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The prophet Joel is, is calling upon the nation of Israel to remember the God of their forefathers and that this event has come and there's a reason it has come and they need to pass this on to their children so they not forget and that they turn back to the Lord with all of their heart and fear the Lord. You remember back in Exodus when Moses was freeing the people from Egypt, there were 10 plagues. How many remember the story? If you haven't read the story of the Exodus, you can find that in Exodus chapter 10, all the way from about like chapter 5 through chapter 12 is the story of the Exodus from Egypt, God's deliverance of his people from the Pharaoh of Egypt and slavery. But in Exodus chapter 10, Verse 14, we read this. We read about the eighth plague. The eighth plague. What do you think the eighth plague was? Correct, it was locust. And we read about it, and it says this in verse 14 of Exodus 10. The locust went up over the entire land of Egypt and settled on the whole territory of Egypt. Never before had there been such a large number of locusts, and there never will be again. It's interesting, similar language to the book of Joel. Obviously, Joel was writing about the Levant. He was writing about what was taking place in Israel. And back in Moses' day, he was talking about what had taken place in Egypt to free the people from slavery. But there was these massive locust plagues that God had sent. The other thing that's interesting about the, um, the locust plague in, in Exodus is, do you remember what the ninth and tenth plagues were? What followed the locust? Darkness over the whole land. And then there was ultimately death. Death of the firstborn throughout the entire land. Man and beast, the firstborn died. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we get some instructions that God leaves for his people Israel through, the, through his servant Moses. And it's all about this idea of, are you going to stay true to the covenant that you have made with me? And so he says there are some things that take place. There are blessings for obedience to the covenant. If you would just follow what you're supposed to do, follow me as your God, you will experience blessing in the land. And he spends time in the first half of Deuteronomy 28 uh, describing the blessings that they will receive if they stay faithful. But then we reach verse 15, and we read this. But if you do not obey the Lord your God, 
by carefully following all of his commands and statutes that I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And he lists out a bunch of curses, and we get to verse 38, and what do we read? We read this. You will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little, because locusts will devour it. And in verse 42, we read this. Whirling or whirring insects will take possession of all your trees and your land's produce. And in verse 45, all these curses will come, pursue, and overtake you until you are destroyed, since you did not obey the Lord your God and keep the commands and statutes he gave you. You see, Joel understood what Deuteronomy is saying. Joel understood that the people of God in his day had began to abandon their allegiance to follow the covenant that God had made with them in the desert. And so they were experiencing the consequences of their rebellion and their sin. The locust was a plague from God that had come and, and ravaged the land. And Joel wanted to remind them that God is faithful and he does keep his promises. You know, sometimes we love to claim those for the good things, right? Do we not? God is faithful and he keeps our promises. He, he delivers us. He, he loves us. He's going to always keep us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. But he's just as true of keeping his promises to bring discipline and judgment in our lives when we're not doing what we're called to do. And we are to remember, we are to recall who God is. And I believe that this is the first key to moving from despair to hope in our lives. The first thing we need to understand is this. In order to move from despair, it will turn to hope in our lives when we're reminded of God's faithfulness. When we're reminded that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do, we can count on that kind of God. He's not wishy-washy. He's not all over the place. And there is hope that is found in a God who is consistent and true. <clears throat> I love what is um, talked about here in Joel because we're reminded that even his judgment even his, his discipline in their lives is a sign of his faithfulness. A sign that he keeps his promises. The question is, do we respond to God's discipline? Do we respond to the discipline that he brings into our, our lives and our situation the way he wants us to? So we continue reading Joel chapter 1, picking up at verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers, because of the sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has devastated my grapevine, 
and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. Grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for the husband of her youth. Grain and drink offerings have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests who are ministers of the Lord mourn. The fields are destroyed, the land grieves. Indeed, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the olive oil, and the olive oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The grapevine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the date palm, and the apple. All the trees of the orchard have withered. Indeed, human joy has dried up. Have you ever been in a place where it is tough to have joy? Because there's always this nagging feeling in your heart and in your mind of, of a situation that you're facing. A situation that just reminds you of that discouragement and that despair in your life. As I told you earlier, I'm walking through such a season. And I know that many of you guys are as well. And it's tough to have joy in that season. You look around and you kind of like try and escape it for a period of time. But then it's always right there, still reminding you that it's tough to have joy. This was the experience of the people of God in Joel's day. Did you hear what was said there? It said the drunkards can't even get drunk anymore. Well, sheesh. I mean, they, even the drunkards have to face the reality of what they're facing. They can't escape by just kind of like, Getting out of, getting out of their, uh, their, their soberness. He talks about the fact that we're to grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for her husband of her youth. How sad it is for a woman to maybe get married or be engaged, and then her husband goes off to war, and then he is killed in battle. And she never even had the opportunity to really spend time with him. It's one of the most tragic things we can think of, right? Well, Joel puts it in here. That was the experience of that day. This is the type of grieving that needs to take place over what, had, what they had experienced in their nation and among their, their people. Grain and drink offerings are cut off. There is no more grain. There is no more drink offerings. They have nothing to offer God in the temple. What a sad state of affairs they find themselves in. The fields are destroyed. The land grieves. Indeed, the grain is destroyed and new wine is dried up. The farmers have nothing to do. The, the vine dressers are out of work. And the harvest is, there's nothing there. verse 13, we get kind of a Joel's instructions for how the people should respond. Listen to this, verse 13, dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests, wail, you ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred fast, 
proclaim an assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The appropriate response when we're facing discouragement and despair is to get on our knees and cry out to God. Because when we cry out to God, we know that our God listens to our cry. He hears us, he cares for us, and he will intervene. And that's the second point. Despair turns to hope when we're reminded of God's faithfulness, number one, but number two, we're assured God hears and answers our cry for help. Psalm 107, I love this psalm. Psalm 107 is a a reminder of this truth that God listens and responds to our cries. Listen to the way it starts. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Verse 4, some wandered in the desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty, and their spirits failed within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distress. Verse 10, others sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in cruel chains, because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the counsel of the Most High. He broke their spirits with hard labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. Verse 17, fools suffered affliction because of their rebellious ways and their sins. They loathed all food and came near the gates of death. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. Over and over again, we're reminded that when you face trouble, hardship, and despair, the appropriate response is to cry out from that place. God, help me. God, I need you. God, I need what you can provide me. Only you can provide what I need. And God listens. And God answers. And God meets us right where we need him to meet us. That's the truth that Joel is trying to communicate to the people of his day. That's the message that we today in the New Testament, the church, we also need to be reminded of and be challenged in. Do we not? Verse 15, we're introduced to a concept that Joel is going to build on in the coming weeks. Verse 15 says, Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. What Joel is saying is that everything that has taken place, what you experienced, the locust plague, is just a harbinger. It's a sign of things to come. Because God's wrath is going to come. He is the ultimate judge of all sin. He sets things straight in the end. And no one can stand against our God. Joel talks about this day of the Lord. What is this day? 
I want you to join me in a few passages that help talk a little further about what the day of the Lord is. Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. This is not new to the, to the hearers of Joel's day. This is built throughout the whole scriptures. This understanding that there's a day coming, and it's referred to as the day of the Lord. What is this day all about? Isaiah 13, 9 says this about the day of the Lord. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with rage and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy the sinners on it. This day doesn't sound very pleasant so far. This is a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day where sinners are going to pay for their rebellion and sin. Obadiah. Join me in Obadiah. That's also an, a minor prophet. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. So two books away from the book that we're studying, the book of Joel. Obadiah only has one chapter, so you don't have to turn to a certain chapter. You just find verse 15 of Obadiah, and it reads this. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, so it will be done to you. What you deserve will return onto your own head. That sounds like justice. That sounds like exactly what justice, the definition of justice is. What you deserve is going to come back to you. We love to, to sing about grace, do we not? We love to worship the God of grace. You know what grace is? Not getting what you deserve. And we should sing about that. Because our sins deserve punishment. Our sins deserve wrath. But God intervened, and he loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. In other words, should not suffer the righteous wrath of God towards the sins that we've committed, but instead receive eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what God wants us to understand. But those who refuse to listen, those who refuse to receive the free gift of salvation that's found in God's only son, Jesus, there's a day of wrath that awaits. There's a day of judgment and justice that is coming their way. God is, yes, he's a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And aren't you thankful God is a good God, and he is just, and he is fair, and he is right. But he is also loving and graceful and merciful. We have an amazing God. But Obadiah reminds us the day of the Lord is coming. A day when things are going to be set straight and sinners punished. Zephaniah. How many of you guys spend a lot of time in Zephaniah? Zephaniah is also in the Minor Prophets. And it's just before the book of Haggai. Zephaniah chapter 1 also builds on this theme of the day of the Lord. Listen to verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. 
I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Verse 18, or verse 17, I continue, their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Verse 18, their silver and their gold. In other words, all their resources will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is a reality that is still to come in our world. And the Bible says that we shouldn't play games with a God who is going to pour out his wrath one day on this earth. We shouldn't think like, well, I shouldn't take God seriously. I have plenty of time. That's exactly the opposite of the attitude that the prophet Joel and the other prophets that wrote about the day of the Lord want someone to have when they hear about this. It should be it should wake us up. It should make us sober-minded that we need God's mercy in our lives. We need to receive what he provides. The day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty, Joel says in verse 15. <clears throat> We're going to continue building on the day of the Lord theme as we get into chapters 2 and chapter 3. So come back and we'll learn more. Stay tuned, and we'll kind of see how all the pieces fit together. But this was just an introduction of what that day is all about. Verse 16, hasn't the food been cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds lie shriveled in their casings. The storehouses are in ruin, and the granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. How the animals even groan. The herds of the cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. In other words, there's a drought now. There's, there's, a, there's a, a famine that has hit the land because of the locusts. And it is a total mess. Animals are starving to death, and as the animals starve, humans begin to starve. There is no grain, and the animals are dying, so there's no meat. This is a desperate situation that the people are facing. And in verse 19, Joel the prophet says this, I call to you, Lord. I call to you. He understands the only salvation they have is through Jesus, through God, through, through that faith in a Jehovah to deliver them. And he takes the initiative to call out. For the fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness and flames have devoured all the trees of the countryside. Even the wild animals cry out to you. This is an indictment, by the way, by Joel. He's saying the animals lift their head to heaven, hoping that somehow there might be some relief, but the people of Israel will not. The people of Israel refuse to cry out to their God. Only Joel finds himself crying out. Even the animals cry out to you, for the riverbeds are dried up, and the fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. How do we move from despair to hope? First, we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. 
Second, we need to be assured that God hears and answers our cries for help. And finally, here in the chapter, I believe we need to be convinced that God is our salvation and deliverer. If we're not convinced that God can help us, that God can take a bad circumstance, a bad situation that we're facing in life, and turn it around for good, then there is no hope. There is no hope. We just, well, go out and do whatever. We must be convinced that our great God can deliver and save us, that he can take ashes and make beauty from them. We will lose hope. And when you lose hope, you won't walk in, in faithfulness to God. And the devil wins because he will take you away. He will take you away from that faithfulness with God. And he will get you going down some other road, a road of hopelessness and despair. I pray that we are all reminded of God's faithfulness through the prophet Joel this morning. That we're all assured that God hears and answers our cries for help. And we're convinced that God is truly a God of salvation and a great deliverer in times of trouble. 1 Thessalonians 5, and I close with this. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 2. says this for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night when they say peace and security then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you brothers and sisters you are not in darkness for this day to overtake you like a thief Verse 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Skip down to to verse 9 with me. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Some of you guys need to hear that. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, So that whether we are awake, in other words, whether we are still alive or asleep, we've already passed away. We will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. You know, the day of the Lord seems like a scary concept, does it not? But the reality is, if we're in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. We aren't going to be the subject of that wrath. We were not intended to experience the wrath of God if we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And my challenge to you as I, as I close this morning is, have you chosen Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you made a commitment to believe in him as your deliverer and salvation? Or are you trying to make it to heaven some other way? Because there is no other way. No other name under heaven whereby men might be saved except for the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim, is it not? We spent a week at summer camp looking at truth with the kids. Every one of the camps was dealing with truth. 
And truth, by, by its definition, means that it's exclusive. It is not inclusive of every idea, is it? Either something is true or it is false. And God wants us to know that the truth is Jesus Christ is the only way that we can be with him forever. Have you confessed him with your mouth? Have you believed in your heart? If you've never done that, the only thing that awaits you is the wrath that your sins deserve. I do not want you to experience that. I do not want you to, to go through paying for your own sins. Turn to the Savior. Turn to Jesus. Surrender your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you for this reminder, God, that you are faithful even in situations where it brings discipline into our lives, you are faithful. God, we know that you can be counted on. You're a consistent God. You're a God who never does not fulfill his word. God, but you're also a God of mercy and compassion, and you listen to our cries for help, and you answer us as a father answers a child. You love us. You're concerned with our lives and our plight. Thank you that we can go to you at any moment with any issue, and you listen. And you empathize. And you love us. God, thank you that you are our salvation, and you are our deliverer. I pray that if anyone's in here who just turned their life over to you, Jesus. They, they prayed in their heart, they want you, Jesus, to be their savior, that they might share with someone that new decision and commitment, and we can encourage them as they live it out. And for the, the rest of us who have made that decision already, God, remind us to turn to you as the sole place for salvation and deliverance from the issues that, that um, travail us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've um, proven that love in such a powerful way to us. In Jesus' name, amen.